Well, let me see a show of hands. How many of you, maybe probably a little bit older than me, grew up with that old time religion with some fire and brimstone kind of preaching? Anybody in the room? Okay, some of us, probably most of you are gonna be older than me. If you're my age, younger than me, you might be thinking, what are you talking about? Like what's fire and brimstone? Let let me give you a good example. In the 1800s, there was a very famous uh, speaker, preacher, author by the name of Charles Spurgeon. And uh, his most famous sermon is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? Don't don't you just want to hear that? Like sinners in the hands of an angry God. We're going to learn about a a God today named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a lot like a Charles Spurgeon. You're going to read it and it's going to feel like those fire and brimstone kind of preachers of old. And so you're like, great, that sounds lovely. Uh, Yeah, I know, buckle up. It's going to be awesome, all right? It's going to be quite the ride this morning. John the Baptist was not what you called seeker sensitive, okay? He didn't care about how you responded or what you thought of him. He wasn't worried about offending people. A group of people are going to come out and see him. You're going to see him in just a second. And uh, they're coming out to listen to him. And he says, "What, uh, what brought you here, you brood of vipers? It's another way of saying you sons of the devil, like you evil, wicked people. What, what brought you out here? Like who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Sounds like a great guy, right? Just so warm and loving, okay? So, so he's not gonna care about growing his crowd, right? He didn't get the memo on church growth on how you grow a church. He wasn't just satisfied either with their attendance with a large crowd. The people that were there listening to him, he said, why are you here? Why are you here? What's what's your motive? Like what is going on in your heart? Yet you're going to see in chapter three, verse 18, Luke says this, with these kinds of warnings, Luke, John the Baptist said, preached the good news. What we're about to read this morning, it may not seem like it at face value, but Luke says, this is good news. It's good news. News. So turn with me to Luke chapter three. We're in a series where we're going through the gospel of Luke and we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Next week we'll be uh, in Luke chapter three, looking at the baptism of Jesus. And we'll also be baptizing some people in our church family. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great week. But this week, here's what I want you to see. The gospel according to John the Baptist. The gospel according to John the Baptist. And here's what you're going to find out by the end of our time together. This is the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of John the Baptist is the gospel of Jesus. It's not gonna seem like it at face value, but this is the gospel of John the Baptist, which is the gospel of Jesus. So follow along with me in our app. Uh, the, the, the verses are there. All the notes are there. You can even fill in the blank as we go. And if you don't have our app, you can download it. There's a, a, a QR code on the back of your pew. You can scan that, download our app, the City Church Lubbock, and uh, click message notes. And then you can follow along our outlines there. The, the verses are there and everything If you don't have our app uh, or a Bible, you can follow along with the verses here on the screen. I'm going to read the first couple of verses and then Jimmy K is going to come and uh, read the scripture for us this morning. Uh, But these first couple of verses have a lot of weird words and names in it. And I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right. Okay. So I'm going to do that and spare her uh, that, that pain. So let's look at the first two verses and then Jimmy K will come and read for us here in just a second. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Iturea and Trachonitis. See, I don't even know if I just said those right. You know, I I mean, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Lysanias, I think I'm saying that right, was ruler over Abilene. 
Little did you know, John the Baptist ministered in, right here in Abilene, Texas, right? No, I'm just kidding. Definitely not. Okay, verse two. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who we saw in Luke chapter one, was also one of the serving priests at the temple, who was living in the wilderness. So, so John's living out in the wilderness. Now, here's what's interesting. Luke mentions these very influential religious and political figures, but in this day and this time, they have no bearing on the kingdom of God. The kingdom advancement, the, the, the gospel is going to spread through this wild, uh, radical dude out in the wilderness, not through the political and religious establishment of the day. Now, make no mistake, we see all throughout the scripture, God using political and religious establishment for your good, my good, and his glory. But he doesn't have to. That's not the only means by which through he works. We, we, we tend to think that the only way that God is going to move in our country is if we get the right laws and policies and politicians in place, okay? We, we, we've, we've thought that, not that God isn't going to use those means, but here and oftentimes, God is moving and working outside of the religious and political establishment especially if he finds a people, if he finds leadership who are not humble and submitting themselves to the Lord. And this is what we find in this day. We find the political and religious establishment are very proud and arrogant, both religious and irreligious. And so God is going to move and work apart from them in and through this man named John the Baptist who lives in the woods in a van down by the river. Now, I know some of you, again, you're gonna get that joke. If you know, you know. Others of you, you're, you're not laughing right now because you don't understand. Why would John be living in a van down by the, there's no vans, right? No, there's no vans. You just don't get the joke, okay? I don't have time to explain it. But John is this radical dude, lives in the woods in a van down by the river and God is going to use him in a powerful way. Now let's learn some about John, the life of John the Baptist, the ministry of John the Baptist, the gospel according to John the Baptist. Look with me in verse three. And uh, as you turn there, Jimmy K is gonna come and read. And now I invite you to stand with me as we honor the, the word of God and the reading of the scripture. So we'll be looking at verse three through 20. Jimmy K. So I went off script in the first service and they didn't kick me out, so I'm back. But uh, I did have a conversation with our group. Is there anybody in our group here today? And we are gonna be called the old readers. So that was what they decided. So, cause we didn't have a group name when I spoke at the first service. So, uh, and my husband's here from Hope City and we, I want to say, I didn't, again, I'm going off script, but um, in six days, we'll have been married 39 years. So, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, and you should clap because <laughs> the only advice I give anyone is that trust God and stay in the boat when you go through the dark tunnel. So, anyway, but um, we're in Luke 3, verses 3 through 20. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him, the valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level. 
The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. And then all the people will see the salvation sent from God. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, or we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to, the, to be baptized and asked, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon. And they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat and his, with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. John also publicly criticized Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, and for many other wrongs he had done. So Herod put John in prison, adding this end to his many others. Thank you, Jimmy Kay. You can be seated. In Luke chapter one, we saw that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, said this about his son, John, that he will be the prophet of the most high. He will prepare the way for the Lord. John chapter one, John writes, not John the Baptist, but John the disciple, John wrote, the testimony of John the Baptist was all about Jesus. John said, look, look to him, don't, don't look at me, look to him. In John chapter one, it said of John the Baptist that he was not the light, but he came as a witness to the light. Luke records that John the Baptist came to announce the good news, the good news about Jesus. You see, John the Baptist was a bridge. He was a bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant. He's like the last prophet preaching about the Messiah, Jesus, who has now come. The, the prophets of old were preaching about a Messiah who would come. John the Baptist is like the last prophet saying the Messiah has come. The Messiah that we've been longing for, that we've been waiting for has come. And so with all of these warnings, he announced the good news. So that's what we're looking at this morning. The gospel according to John the Baptist. The good news according to John the Baptist. So let's break this down. Number one, the good news is about bad news. The good news is about bad news. John sees this huge crowd coming from Jerusalem and what's the intro to his message? What's the intro to his sermon? You brood of vipers. He's referring to Genesis chapter three. He's basically calling them sons of the devil. Your, your sons, your offspring of that evil, wicked serpent, that evil snake. 
That, that's who you are. You are wicked and evil. This is his intro. He's just getting started, right? And so he's confronting these proud religious people with the sin that's in their life. He also confronts some proud, irreligious people for the sin that's in their life, like Herod. And the sexual immorality that Herod, is enga- that Herod was engaged in, who thought he could take a wife that was not his and his own family and marry her. And John the Baptist say, no, you don't, that's not the way this works, okay? That, that's not what marriage is. You, you don't get to do marriage your way. Marriage is something I created. It's something that I ordain. You do marriage my way. And so John the Baptist didn't really care who you were. He was gonna tell you the truth. He was gonna tell you the bad news. And he wouldn't just say, listen, you're messed up and you're in sin. He said, I am too. Look what he says in verse 16. I'm not worthy to untie Jesus's sandals. I'm the lowest. He's saying I'm as low as a slave. In fact, he would say, I'm not even worthy to be Jesus's slave. That's how low I am. It's like Paul saying, I'm the worst of sinners. John the Baptist is saying, I'm I'm the worst of sinners. And I'm not worthy of him. The culture today would like us to believe that, hey, listen, you're good enough, uh, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you, right? You're, you're worthy, you're enough. John the Baptist saying, no, you're not. You're not worthy, you're not enough. You don't deserve the grace and mercy of God. We are not worthy. We, we are not good enough to have a relationship with God. And so John the Baptist is saying, it, it, there's bad news. To understand the good news, to understand how great the good news really is, you have to understand the bad news. And the good news is about the bad news. Look what he says about Jesus. He's got his winnowing fork in his hand and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Just in the same way, He's going to separate authentic believers from pretenders, from non-believers. He's going to separate the two, just like someone separates the wheat from the chaff. And in the same way you burn the chaff with never-ending fire, John the Baptist said, those who are unbelievers, those who are pretenders, who believe there's something they're not, are going to go into, John the Baptist said, never-ending fire fire. Now, in case you're like, that's just John the Baptist, you know, surely Jesus didn't say anything like that. (laughs) Go read Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about separating the sheep from the goats in the same way John the Baptist here is separating the the wheat from the chaff. And he says to the the, 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 the lambs, the sheep, they're going to be on my right. They're going to go away into eternal uh, uh, pleasure and joy into the, the, the place that was prepared for them. But then he says to the goats on his left, he said, you're going to go away into eternal fire, eternal punishment. So The gospel, according to John the Baptist, is the gospel of Jesus. There there is no difference. John the Baptist says there's a fire that's coming, that Jesus is actually going to bring this fire and this judgment, and he is going to be the one, and Jesus even claims to be the one in Matthew 25, who's the one on the throne separating the sheep from the goats and sending the goats into their eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Now, all throughout church history, this has not settled well with people. It doesn't settle well with me. I think if you're honest, it's like, oh, that, didn't, that, didn't, that, didn't set, that didn't feel very good, right? That, that didn't sound right. That didn't sound good. That didn't sound fair. And, and so Christians all throughout church history 
when it comes to this you and others, will kind of cherry pick a verse and, and build a theology around one verse that's taken out of context. And they'll say things like, well, that's not what Jesus was really meaning. What, what he was really saying, maybe in this verse, again, that's cherry picked and it's pulled out of context. What he's really saying is that people are going to be annihilated. Like the, the, the judgment is death and you're, no, you're not alive or conscious anymore. You're, you're annihilated, like you're done, it's over. Some people said, no, no, it's not that. Uh, people will go to hell and they will pay for their sin, but at a certain point, they will have paid for their sin and then they will be freed and, and released from the, the torment of hell. I, I just wanna ask you, read, read the verse. What does John the Baptist say? That this fire that Jesus is going to bring is never ending, he said. Go read Matthew chapter 25. Jesus said the punishment that is to come for the goats, that is those who do not follow him, that do not listen to him, the punishment that is to come, Jesus said in Matthew 25, is an eternal punishment. It's an eternal punishment. It's what led Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology to say that hell is the eternal conscious torment of the wicked. Eternal there's no end. Conscious, you are fully aware and alive of what's happening. Torment, it's pain and suffering of the wicked. Those who have not given their lives to Jesus. So, so there is no more important decision than you can make in this life than what you're gonna do with Jesus. It's the single most important decision you will ever make in your entire lifetime because there is no other decision in this life that has the kind of eternal consequences that comes with it like this decision. It's the most important decision you can make. If John the Baptist is right, if Jesus is right, if, if Wayne Grudem is right in his definition of hell, and I believe that he is, it's the eternal conscious torment of the wicked, then there is no more important Decision. You see, the good news starts off with understanding the bad news. You've got to understand how bad the bad news really is to understand how great the great news really is. And the great news is that God loves you so much, Romans 5, 8 says, that he doesn't want you to spend eternity in hell, separated from him, being consciously tormented forever. He doesn't want that for you because he's a good and loving father. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, Romans 5, 8 says, demonstrating his love for you demonstrating his love. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the fine for your sin. You see, when you break man's law, you pay man's fine. When you break God's law, you pay God's fine. And God's fine for sin is eternity separated from him in eternal punishment in this never ending fire. And you might say that, that sounds harsh, that sounds extreme. Listen, you've offended and sinned against an eternal being so the consequence is eternal in its nature. You and I will never understand it as finite beings, but you have infinitely offended an infinitely holy and righteous God who is eternal. And so when you offend an eternal being, the consequence is eternal. We've talked about this before. If after the service, you don't like what I've said, you could come up and punch me in the face and uh, there's a cop that's gonna be there and they're gonna drop you to the ground. They're gonna take you out of here, right? But you're gonna get in some trouble. But if you went up and punched our governor in the face, you're gonna get a lot more in trouble, right? If you went up and punched President Biden in the face, there's gonna be a lot more trouble. The office that you've offended dictates the consequence. You've offended an infinitely holy and eternal God. So the consequence is infinite and eternal in its nature. 
You see, you've got to understand how bad the bad news really is, but you've got to understand how that, that, that then shines a light on how great the great news really is that we have a loving father who loves us and has made a way out for us. He's made a way for us to be forgiven of our sin, to have the fine paid and to be made, to be made right with him. And, and to, to show you that and to explain that to you, I want to point you to our city seven truth number three. That's our truth for this week. Our city seven or seven foundational truths that remind us of what we believe and, and why we believe it. And we go over one of these every week in here, in our kids' classes, in youth, in our devotionals, in our table talk for parents, uh, in our groups. We review this one truth. And the truth for this week is city seven uh, number three. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, since all of us have sinned, John the Baptist said, you've sinned and I've sinned. We've all sinned and the wages of sin is death. That's the never ending fire that's to come that John the Baptist was talking about. Jesus had to die on the cross to pay the fine for my sin so that I could be made right with God. Second Corinthians five says it like this. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus. He was perfect and holy. He who knew no sin became sin. He took your sin, he took my sin upon himself through his death on the cross so that those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, would become the righteousness of God. You are given righteousness, he takes your sin. It's the great exchange, that's the great news of the gospel. He takes your sin, the fine for your sin, and he gives you his righteous life. When you place your faith in Jesus, when you give your life to Jesus, Luke says in verse 18, with these kinds of warnings, John the Baptist preached the good news. The good news is about bad news. Secondly, the good news is about old news. This good news is old news. According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Jesus, Isaiah chapter 40, which talks about a voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord is John the Baptist. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Jesus all said that Isaiah was speaking of John the Baptist in Isaiah chapter 40, when he said, there's a voice in the wilderness that's going to prepare the way for the Lord. That's him, that's John the Baptist. Verse 15 says this, Luke says, everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon. Isaiah 53 said about the Messiah that the Messiah will be a lamb that's led to the slaughter, that will be pierced for our sins and our transgressions, that will be beat for us in our place. But says that after this lamb has died, taking on the sins of his people, that he will be raised to life and he will have many offspring and he will enjoy a long life. It's talking about an eternal life. So this lamb is going to die in the place of his people's sin. Then he's going to be raised to new life and have many descendants that will come after him, many followers that will come after him. Who does that sound like? That was Isaiah 53. This is 700 years before the time of Jesus. So the people of God have been waiting on this Messiah, this lamb who's going to come. That's also a king, a, a king who's going to rule on David's throne, but is also going to be a lamb that's going to be slain in our place for our sin. And they didn't totally understand that. And so they were looking for uh, this political king to come the first time, but it was the lamb that came the first time. The king's coming the second time. So, Luke says, everyone's expecting this Messiah any day now. And they're asking John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? He's saying, no, it's not me, it's him. 
He's the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said. There goes the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb. He's the Lamb that Isaiah prophesied about that would come like a, and be led like a lamb to the slaughter, would be pierced for our sin, would be beaten for our transgressions, and he would die and, and he would come back to life and he have many descendants. Here, here's what's interesting about what's going on here in John's ministry. He's actually baptizing some Jews. Now, this was common for Gentiles to get baptized, to repent of their sin and of their life and to give themselves to Israel's God. That, that, that was a common practice. But, but John the Baptist is baptizing Jews. And so by the very nature, by this very act, here's, here's what John the Baptist is saying to these Jews. And you can see it some in his preaching here. He's telling them that your temple worship, your, your, your sacrifices, your, your dietary restrictions, all it did was prepare you for and point you to your lamb sacrifice who will die in your place for your sin once and for all time. Hebrews would say it like this. The writer of Hebrews said, listen, the, the, the blood of lambs and bulls and goats and all these kinds of things, they just pacified the wrath of God for your sin for a short time. They, they cleansed you on the outside, but, but they would never, the writer of Hebrews says, the, 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 that blood of the, all those sacrifices that the, the, Jew, the Jews were performing would never cleanse your heart. It didn't change your heart. It would pacify the wrath of God until all those sacrifices were pointing to a lamb sacrifice that would come and would die once and for all time, the writer of Hebrews says, and would put an end to this whole system because he would fulfill it. He would die, but then he would come back to life and be our forever high priest, Hebrews says. So this good news it's about old news that was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. And everyone's expecting this Messiah to be here any day. And they're looking at John the Baptist and are, 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 is it you? And he said, no, it's not me, it's him. There goes the, the lamb, the Messiah, the king. There he goes. He's gonna take away the sin of the world. And then third, finally, this good news is about new news. This good news is about new news. It's about a new life in Christ that Jesus produces in you and through you. It's about a new, brand new life. The old is gone and the new has come. Look in verse eight. John says, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sin. In other words, followers of Jesus are going to have a brand new life where they love and follow Jesus, run from their sin, hate their sin, and pursue holiness. John said, prove by the way that you live. You're gonna have a new life. You're gonna have a new life that's gonna show that you've repented, that the old is gone and the new has come. Look in verse five. Verse four is talking about John the Baptist, that he's gonna come and prepare the way of the Lord. And then it says in verse five, here's what this king, here's what the Messiah, here's what the Lord is going to do. Through Jesus, the high places are going to be brought low. In other words, uh, the, the proud are going to be humbled. The arrogant are going to be humbled. It says the crooked, these crooked paths are going to be made straight. The, the rough places are going to be made smooth. Here's what Luke is saying. Here's what Isaiah was saying, that when the Messiah comes, those that follow him, that follow the Messiah, that give their life to Jesus, 
the crookedness in their life is going to be made straight. The, the rough places in their life are going to be made smooth. Jesus is going to change your life. See, when Jesus starts preaching, all these crowds start following, thousands and thousands of people. They, they love that he's feeding them and he, he's healing them and he's doing all these great signs and wonders. And, and so they're coming out to see him, but then the message begins to change, doesn't it? And Jesus begins to say, if you're gonna follow me, you gotta deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And they're kind of like, oh, okay, uh, that's a little bit different. Um, we weren't really expecting that. Uh, so that sounds a little bit harder than all the things you've been doing for me. So we're out. And it says that the crowds begin to leave, to leave Jesus. So much so Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you gonna leave me too? Peter said, Jesus, we've got nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. We've got nowhere else to go. The crowds start thinning out because the message started getting harder. They begin to realize, oh, following Jesus means denying myself, taking up my cross and following him. That This journey is going to be a journey of sacrifice, of humility, of Jesus removing things from my life, humbling me, healing me, and dying to myself. You see, there's no magic prayer here. John the Baptist doesn't give the, the sinner's prayer and say, just pray these words and you'll be fine. Jesus never once says, just pray these words, recite these words and you'll be fine. There is no sinner's prayer in all the Bible. There, not, not once is there any language about inviting Jesus into your heart. There, there is no language like that. That is not in the Bible. Now people have led us and guided us through prayers like that to reflect maybe what's really going on in our hearts. But those prayers are not magic. Those words are not magic. You don't pray those words and you're just fine. You're all right. You're good with God because you prayed those words. That is nowhere in the scripture. If you've believed that, you, you've believed a lie. You've been deceived. John said, you're going to have a new life if you've given your life to Jesus. You're gonna have a brand new life. There's going to be objective evidence of genuine repentance. And then he gives some examples here. Look with me in verse 11. He says to those who have plenty, don't indulge in your stuff. You need to help the hungry, help the poor. It's like Jesus said in Matthew 25, that those who follow him, his sheep who know him and listen to his voice, are going to care about the poor, the orphan, the widow, the oppressed, the prisoner. Jesus says it's in the DNA of the people of God that they care about those who are oppressed, those who are marginalized. Look in 12 through 14, he talks to the tax collectors and the soldiers and they're like, what, what do we do? And he tells them, you need to live with integrity. You need to be content with what you have. You don't need to use your power and influence to take. You need to use your power and influence to be a blessing to people and to give. You see, like almost all of the other prophetic ministries and movements before John, John's ministry is confronting widespread injustice and oppression by those with money and power. There's no doubt if you read all of the Bible that you will see God's heart for the poor, the orphan, the prisoner, the widow, those who don't have anything, those who are oppressed, those who have been marginalized. 
God has a heart for those people and he gets pretty upset when his people don't have a heart for those kinds of people. Tim Keller wrote an excellent article on biblical justice. I posted about it probably a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'd invite you to go read the whole thing because I really believe Christians in our day today, if we're gonna be the salt and light, if we're gonna be the influence that God is wanting us to be in our culture today, we must have a full biblical understanding of what biblical justice is. And in this article, he lays it out. I think he does a masterful job laying out all the elements of biblical justice. One of those, Tim Keller says, is advocacy. And here's what he says. While we are not to show partiality to any, we are to have special concern for the powerless. This is not a contradiction. Proverbs 31, verse eight and nine says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. The Bible doesn't just say, speak up for the rich and powerful not because they are less important as persons before God, but because they just don't need you to do this. The playing field is not level. And if we don't advocate for the poor, there will not be equality. In this aspect of justice, we are seeking to give more social, financial, and cultural capital or power to those with less. Jeremiah 22 verse three says this, protect the person who is being cheated from the one who is mistreating foreigners, orphans, or widows. Protect those people. Jeremiah is singling out for protection groups of people who can't protect themselves from mistreatment the way others can. Now, in case you're like, Tim Keller is some liberal, woke police now, you couldn't be further from the truth. This is a very conservative guy, conservative theology, and he presents biblical justice. And you and I as followers of Jesus need to have an understanding, a full understanding what the full counsel of God's word has to say about biblical justice and about what God expects from his people and about the way that God's people will treat those who are marginalized and oppressed. Now all week, I've been wondering why John the Baptist, when you read Matthew 25, Jesus says almost the exact same thing. Why is it that This is kind of the markers. These these are the DNA points that John the Baptist and Jesus both used to say, this is what the people of God will look like. Why this? There's so many other things. We're so used to the don't do this list and do all these things list. Why this? And as I was praying about it, it was like, I felt like God just said, maybe, maybe, the reason John the Baptist points to this kind of lifestyle and Jesus points to this kind of lifestyle in Matthew chapter 25 is the identity of a follower of Jesus, that, that this kind of care and concern will, will, will mark us. Maybe it's because we're most like Jesus when we deny ourselves for the sake of others. In Philippians chapter two, it says that Jesus left his throne in heaven. He gave up the position. He gave up the privilege. He gave up so much in Philippians 2, and it says this, to take on the form of a human. He lowered himself to take on flesh. And in doing so, it says he humbled himself and he became a servant. Jesus said, I I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for me, to give up my life. That's what marked Jesus, this willingness to give up himself for our sake. 
And and so I'm, I'm just wondering if the reason John the Baptist, the reason Jesus in Matthew 25 points to this kind of lifestyle is that it's because maybe we're just, we're most like him. When we're giving up of ourselves for the sake of someone else, to advocate for it, to defend, to help those who are marginalized, those who are powerless, those who are oppressed. But my guess is if you came to John the Baptist and you were like, hey, listen, JTB, brother, you know, my guy, dude, uh, listen, buddy, I, it's all great. You know, that's good. I, I prayed the prayer. I prayed the prayer. It's like the Jews coming out to John the Baptist saying, hey, JTB, listen, buddy, calm down. Ease up, buddy. We've all been circumcised, right? Okay. We've been circumcised. We've been going through all the religious routines. We've been doing all that, right? We've done it. Like, chill out, buddy. Here's what I think John the Baptist would say to you if you're like, hey, buddy, calm down, buddy. I prayed the prayer. I'm good. We're in. We're all good. Here's what I think he would respond with. The ax of God's judgment is ready to cut down these fruitless trees. The ax of God's judgment is going to cut down these fruitless trees. I think John the Baptist would just say, your repentance has been false. It's been external. It's been religious rote routine. God's after your heart. Jesus would say of some of these same people, you're a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside. You've said the right things on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. There's nothing but death. You're a whitewashed tomb. Paul would say it like this. Your circumcision was just supposed to point to what was going on in your heart. That there's no outward, external, religious routine that you can perform that's gonna make you right with God. There are no magic words that are gonna make you right with God. Paul said, what God's after, we said that we saw this in Colossians, is a circumcision of your heart. God is after your heart. So this new life that John the Baptist is talking about is produced by a new covenant that gives you a new heart. This is the new news. The good news is about new news, a new covenant that gives you a new heart that produces this new life. This new life doesn't come through political power, influence, or money. That this new isn't brought about by effort, doing better, or trying harder. No, this new, this new life, this new heart comes from the new covenant. It's produced by the inner working of the Holy Spirit that changes your heart. John the Baptist said this, when Jesus comes, Look what he said about Jesus. When he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's the new covenant. The new heart that produces a new life is brought about by the new covenant. And in the new covenant, when you give your life to Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. It's the fiery, passionate presence of God inside of you that gives you a hatred for sin and a love for holiness. It gives you a love for the spiritual things of heaven. It gives you a love for being here right now with God's people. It gives you a love for worship. It gives you a love for the word of God. It gives you a love for prayer. You love these things. You thought they were boring before, but now you love them because you've got the fire of the Holy Spirit inside of you saying, yes, this is what we're here. This is why I'm here. I want this, I need this. It's a completely different life than the old one. 
John said, when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, scholars have debated, is John referring there to the fire of the Holy Spirit, that all-consuming, purifying presence of the Holy Spirit that gives you a passion for the things of heaven, for the things of God? Or is John saying he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit or fire in the way of judgment that he's referring to here? That This fire that's coming, this ax that's coming to the tree to chop down the tree, is he referring to the judgment that's to come? Now, here's what we know as we read all of the scripture. It's, it's both and. It's both and, but it's also either or. And let me explain that to you. It, it, it's both and because in the new covenant, when you give your life to Jesus, you do receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is that fiery presence of God that gives you a passion for Jesus. It gives you a love for Jesus. It gives you a love for the people of God and all the spiritual things of heaven, spiritual things of God. But at the same time, if you don't give your life to Jesus, then Jesus has fire for you. It's the judgment for your sin. So, so it's both and because as we study the scripture, we, we know that, that, that fire is often an illustration of the Holy Spirit, but fire is also what we, we see is used to refer to what happens in hell. So, so fire is used to describe both and. But in another sense, it's either or. Here's what I mean by that. It's either you've got the fire of the Holy Spirit inside of you or you're going to experience the fire of hell. It's one or the other. You're either experiencing the fire of the Holy Spirit inside of you, giving you a hatred for sin and a love for Jesus, a love for holiness. And if you don't have that, then Jesus would say, you're on the highway to hell and you're gonna experience that fire. You see, some of us are here and we've been pretending to be something we're not. Some of us are here and we're loving every second of this right now. We're singing the songs, praying, we're studying God's word and you're eating it up, you're loving it, you're almost on the edge of your seat. Some of you, your heart's beating. Like because you, you love this, you're, you're eating it up. And some of you couldn't be more bored. You're bored to tears right now. And if that's you, you're in a dangerous spot. You're in a dangerous spot. Because you've either been away from the Lord so long that you've, in the words of Revelation, you've forsaken your first love. Or you're pretending to be something you're not. It's the fire of the Holy Spirit or the fire of hell. And it's all about what you do with Jesus. If you give your life to Jesus, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, with this passion, this love for Jesus, this love for the things of God. But if that's not there, then maybe you're pretending to be something you're not. Now, I know some of you are here like, wow, I thought you said we were going to talk about good news today. <laughs> I thought this was supposed to be good news. Let me take you back to verse 18. Luke says, with all of these kinds of warnings, 
John announced the good news. With these kinds of warnings, John announced the good news. You see, the package that a lot of us have been sold and we've been led to believe is that following Jesus, being a Christian, is about begrudging submission. But God is not glorified in that. It's like, guys, if I were to ask you how your marriage is going and you were like, well, um, you know, I made a commitment. Uh, you know, I, I gave my word, so I'm sticking to it. I mean, that woman is horrible and sucks the life out of me, but, but you know what? I made a promise, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to persevere to the end of my life, I guess, you know. I, I don't think any little boy or girl grows up dreaming about that, right? N none of us want that. But a lot of us have bought that same lie, begrudging submission when it comes to relationship with God through Jesus. But let me show you what David said in Psalm 16 about his relationship with God. Psalm 16, David says this, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There's nothing good, David said, apart from you. All, all that is good, David said, is found in you. There's nothing good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight in the people of God. The, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Uh, David's saying, if you're searching after pleasure and joy outside of God, you're just going to find sorrow. Nothing but sorrow awaits you. That their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's talking about the false gods, the, the, the idolatry and that false worship. The, the Lord is my chosen in portion and my cup, you hold my lot. The, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. This is referring to his land. Some translations say the land that you've given me. The, the, the boundaries of that land, David said, the, the lines, the boundary lines of the land that you've given me have fallen in pleasant places. Your boundary lines, David says, are pleasant to me. They are good. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance inside the lines that you have given me. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David says in a relationship with God, there is pleasure, there is joy. Following Jesus is about your pleasure. It's about your joy. This is what God has created us for. Joy, pleasure in a relationship with him, eternal joy, eternal pleasure in a relationship with him. So here's what I want you to see finally about the good news. The good news is good news. David said, my heart is glad and my, I my flesh, my body rejoices in God, my savior. The inheritance you've given me, the lines that you've drawn out for me in that place, my heart is glad and there is eternal pleasure. There is joy. The good news is good news. The good news is for your good. David said, God, you're, you're for my good. You're giving me an inheritance. You're drawing the lines in pleasant places. 
where I will experience your best. So let's look past the surface. Why are you here? Is it begrudging submission? Are you clocking in? What's your motive for being here? Are you here because of other people? Are you here to make some business, some social connections? Or do you find delight? Do you find pleasure in the presence of God? Is your heart burning for God, for his word, for his people? For me, I I grew up going to church in begrudging submission to my parents, right? They, they, They drug me to church. I had a drug problem, right? I was drugged to church. It's begrudging submission. It's because I had some friends there. I enjoyed hanging out with them in my youth group and stuff. But when I was a junior in high school, I started following Jesus for the first time and my life totally changed. That was 22 years ago and I've never been the same. I've never looked back. Like David, the lines, the inheritance that he's given me has fallen in pleasant places. He's been so good. And so if you're here this morning and you don't find delight, you don't find pleasure, joy in the presence of God, it's more begrudging submission than maybe, maybe you have not experienced the life-changing gospel of John the Baptist, the gospel of Jesus. And today you need to give your life to Jesus. And if that's you, jump on our app, fill out our connect form, let us know that you're committing your life to Christ and we'll be in touch. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word for how it speaks to us, for how it convicts us, it comforts us and it changes us. And God, I pray that you would do all of those things in Jesus' name, through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, let us not leave this place pretending to be something that we're not. God, may your fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit consume us and fill us with a passion with a joy, with a pleasure in your presence that we could say like David, joy and pleasure are found in your presence and my heart is glad. It's in your name we pray.